Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy Contours podcast series. I'm your guest host today, Eugene Chausovsky, and I'll be talking to Kai Chun, Stephen Wong about the upcoming elections in Taiwan and their implications for U.S.-China relations in the coming year. Stephen is a policy research fellow for the Johns Hopkins University SAIS Rush Hour Center for East Asian Studies, and Stephen has also worked in Taiwan's legislative yuan as a foreign policy advisor to a former co-chair of the Foreign Affairs and National Defense Committee. So Taiwan will be holding presidential and legislative elections on January 13th, and these elections could have major ramifications on cross-state relations between Taiwan and China, as well as the broader great power competition between the U.S. and China. So, Stephen, could you please start us off by giving us an overview of the Taiwanese political landscape heading into the elections in January? No problem, Eugene, and uh, thank you so much for your kind introduction. Taiwan's upcoming uh, 2024 election is not only critical for Taiwan itself, but it's also for the broader security situation in East Asia, as well as the prospect of the uh, still tense competitive U.S.-China relations. The election priority list, particularly in the uh, 2022 local election in Taiwan, we saw the main opposition party, the KMT, gain around 14 cities and counties out of 22 in Taiwan. And the DPP kept five. And the newly formed TPP in 2019, led by the former mayor of Taipei, won two. Uh, one of them is Xinzhu City, which is the headquarter and some of the core operations of the TSMC with also one independent county, that is KMT leaning. So technically, leading up to the 2024 election, we are looking at a local, we're looking at a map where the pen blue, uh, which is KMT's main party color, has around 15 cities and counties, while the DPP, or also knowing Taiwan as a pen green party faction, suffered its biggest loss, local election loss, uh, since the founding of the party in 1986, and before that, their worst performance was actually in 2018 with six cities and, and counties instead of five. So the governing party, the DPP, Democratic Progressive Party, named the incumbent vice president, William Lai, as his candidate. And he picked with the uh, former Republic of China, Taiwan, a representative to the United States, Bi Xiao, as his run. On the other hand, you have the opposition party, the main one, KMT, nominated the mayor of New Taipei City and a former chief of police, Hou Youyi. He paired with TV celebrity and a former legislator, as well as a former minister of the Environmental Protection Agency, Zhao Shaokang, as his running mate. As for the TPP, the TPP chairman himself, the former mayor of Taipei, Ke Wenzhou, decided to pick a incumbent legislator, Ao Bai Xu, as a She's still a very fresh politician, and she has some very uh, formidable and also influential commercial background, uh, Cynthia Wu, to be his running mate. Great. Thanks so much, Stephen. So I, I'm curious, how would you assess the different outcomes? Let's say if we compare the victory of you know, the DPP, the ruling party, versus the, the KMT, the opposition party, which you've outlined, how would that impact Taiwan's overall defense and foreign policies moving into next year? So basically, maybe looking at some of the main differences between the two parties, depending on who would win, and what also would be the commonalities between victory for either party. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that is a question I think a lot of people in Taiwan are also anticipating on. So when it comes to some of the core aspects of so-called the basis of interaction for the DPP and the KNT regarding mainland China, 
there, there are a lot of differences. So I think number one, DPP has been generally regarded also amongst themselves and in Taiwan as a, you know, as a party that pursues the ultimate formation or the form of Taiwan as a political entity on the international stage should be an independent country with a name Taiwan. But currently, their position is basically referring to Taiwan as the Republic of China, Taiwan. So for the DPP, they stress the importance of interacting with the CCP based on the principles of of sovereignty, equality, and dignity. The DPP also does not recognize the 1992 consensus, which is a meeting between the uh, CCP and the then KMT government official in Hong Kong, where uh, there is a very interesting but also ambiguous agreement on the so-called One China concept uh, between the cross-streets. So the DPP doesn't recognize that. But you do have the incumbent president, Tsai Ing-wen. She did recognize there is a historical fact that a two parties, two parties basically means the Chinese and Taiwanese officials met in Hong Kong in the year 1992. So she's trying her very best to kind of draw a middle ground between pacifying the more Taiwan independence-leaning faction in the party while trying to maintain a middle ground as well. But you also have the current candidate, William Lai. He stressed also the importance of conducting cross-race relations based on the constitution of the Republic of China, particularly on the part about regulations pertaining to the people of mainland China. I think there's a law on that. KMT, on the other hand, interacts with the CCP uh, or mainland China based on the so-called Constitutional 92 and one China separate interpretation. So KMT does stress that there's one China, and then China is the Republic of China instead of the PRC on the other side. KMT also opens to interact with the CCP based on the principles of equality, dignity, and the respect for the Republic of China. The interesting part about KMT is that during their interactions, they do not recognize the sovereignty of the PRC, but they also do not deny the jurisdiction of the PRC on the mainland. So when it comes to the result of the election, I think it is an open secret on all three sides. So three sides, we're talking about Beijing, Washington, and Taipei, that the CCP has prepared different playbooks for whatever results that's coming in. So if we're looking at a DPP victory in the presidential election, there will be most likely, out of all the other potential results, some form of major destabilizing actions from China. Either during the transition period from January to May, Taiwan has a very long power transition period. The election ends on Jan 13 and the transition completes on May 20th. Or the CCP could immediately, after the new government swears in, take aggressive actions. But these actions can range from you know, economic, diplomatic, or the more conventionally known military actions. For example, the PRC has recently announced some major conclusions on their investigation called unfair trade practices pertaining to ECFA, uh, Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement that was signed between Taiwan and China in the year 2010, which can impact a lot of businesses on Taiwan, uh, also impacts a lot of the products that will be exported to mainland China. As for dealing with a potential KMT victory, it is likely that PRC will continue to maintain military pressure on Taiwan, but a sudden escalation uh, seems unlikely. What is even more likely is that the PRC will definitely demand some preconditions for the restoration of a warmer cross-rates uh, relation.
it is likely that China will basically demand some some sort of internal reforms within the legal structures of Taiwan to, for example, open up more Chinese investments in Taiwan, demanding a more equal treatment when it comes to trade practices, and also perhaps try to incentivize KMT leadership into a deeper political conversation, which the KMT leadership at this point as the candidate Hoyoi himself has stated in a Bloomberg interview, I think is around September, that, that this is not the time for a leadership meeting between the two, two sides. But also at the same time, Beijing is needed to show more goodwill to the people of Taiwan before any substantial or, or new approach can happen between the two. But it's likely that the, the PRC will try to stress that, you know, one of your platform that leading up to your victory is your promise of improving relationship with mainland China. And PRC might actually set some preconditions to it. So finally, the final part. Uh, I mean, the United States is probably going to be in a difficult position to kind of respond to a aggressive Chinese behavior uh, after the 2024 election. Either is is because of you can say some domestic fatigue when it comes to demonstrating more military posture uh, externally, or that President Biden or the current Democratic government what might be preferred a more stabilized cross trade relations. So so there are definitely potential recall or a reenactment of a uh, 2000 to 2008 scenario where you do have Washington also putting pressure. On Taipei and trying to stabilize relationship with the mainland. Thanks very much, Stephen. So you've already kind of uh, touched on this on uh, my next question in your previous, you know, response. But in terms of assessing the different reactions of the PRC to, you know, a, a DPP versus KMT victory in these elections. So maybe shifting focus a little bit in terms of looking at how this election could impact China's broader relationship with the U.S. Right? We saw. Recently, uh, Xi and Biden had a pretty significant sit-down prior to the COP28 Global Energy Climate Summit. They agreed to relieve, to a certain extent, some tensions in some areas. But Taiwan was actually an area that was brought up that seems like it's still going to be a major tension point between the two countries yeah. moving forward. So, how do you see that impact? You know, specifically the elections on that that broader U.S.-China relationship in the next year. So, so yeah, the uh, Biden Xi meeting in San Francisco is is definitely a interesting step towards a a potential kind of stabilization of the of the relationship between the two powers. But there's there's also a lot of caveats when when the two sides are talking about Taiwan. So, I think I think there are several points that needs to be made when the two sides are thinking about how the other side might actually decide to do on Taiwan after 2024. The first one is the U.S. and China are still expecting to maintain competitive relationship in the foreseeable future. Now, that is understandable, and、uh, it's very hard to kind of return from that direct course of direction. The U.S. also understands that its deterrence in East Asia、uh, remain、uh, somehow insufficient, and peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait is right now a core national interest for the United States. I mean, one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of a、uh, forced posturing. And also force reconstructions or redesign. I think it's precisely because the U.S. understands that its deterrence posture needs to change in reaction to 
I think number one, the growth of the uh, POA's capacity around Taiwan, and also number two, the level or the progress of Taiwan's buildup of its deterrence. So the United States on the third point is they, they need a Taiwan that can maintain and improve deterrence against China and to maintain the peace in the strait. And the fourth point is China understands that, and China understands its window of opportunity in tilting regional balance is kind of closing. I, I would uh, kind of irresponsibly kind of use some figures just from some key documents and st key statements of uh, different analysts and officials. So you do have still, you do have uh, some people in the United States and uh, as well as in Taiwan that still believes that Xi Jinping expects the POA by 2027 to, to accumulate the uh, initial capacity for a military mission on Taiwan. But also at the same time, if you look at the end of some of the major U.S. force restructuring and redesign is on 2035. I think if I remember correctly, that's for the Army uh, as well as the Marine. So China is looking at this window of 2027 to 2035 and sees that, OK, so this might be the point where Taiwan's weapons are still not arriving from the United States. Its government might still be uh, in a very fragile state because one of the interesting results and the most likely result in the Taiwan's election is the governing party is not going to get a sufficient mandate, both in the presidential votes gained as well as the legislative one. So China understands that it has some sort of window of opportunity, and it, it probably needs to maximize whatever advantages they can get during that framework, during that time frame. The final point is China still prefers the path of peaceful unification with Taiwan. But if we see a politically more defiant Taiwan, it kind of provides China with more incentives to accelerate Ivan's economic and diplomatic isolation, as well as you know, giving China more excuses to escalate their uh, military activities around Taiwan. So those are some of the potential changes and the potential thinking that U.S. and China will be having moving forward and beyond 2024. Yeah, so you talk about, you know, China's, essentially China's window of opportunity and then the U.S. deterrence strategy. I'm curious, you know, even beyond kind of that longer term time frame of 2027 and beyond, we have seen how the U.S. has become distracted in a way. I mean, there's obviously the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, which has had its ups and downs more recently, this the Israel-Gaza conflict. All of these have, have shown to be stretching to some extent U.S. bandwidth, you know, perhaps not militarily, but certainly uh, politically and economically. So I'm curious what your thoughts are from Taiwan's perspective. Is there a concern for that? And how does that kind of factor into the broader strategic planning when it comes to China? Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah, that is a very important question indeed. From the perspective of Taiwan and I think more particularly, my experience in the legislative and Taiwan's parliament kind of it kind of gives me this this informed speculation that the decision makers in Taiwan will be concerned about how U.S. is distracted both in terms of resources and both in terms of spending their political capitals in, in helping Taiwan. So number one, precisely like you, you had just mentioned, Eugene, is that um, uh, some of the U.S. conventional munitions are, are being prioritized to either Ukraine or, or to the support of Israel. So those are some of the things that Taiwan would definitely be be concerned about. Taiwan is, uh, for example, but I don't think the government, the, the Taiwanese government is looking into this right now. But when it comes to conventional artillery munitions, 
I mean, the United States, we're talking about like the 155 millimeter howitzer, for example. Ukraine, by some rough assessment, in pure defensive need, it probably needs around 6,000 to 8,000 shells per day. While the United States, before they ramp up their production on those conventional shells, they only produce 24,000 per month. And it takes a lot of years for the Europeans and the Americans to kind of ramp up that production to both satisfy their domestic stockpile, as well as having spares to provide it to both Ukraine. And now you have Israel, who is also using that munition in their conventional military operation. So that's number one. And uh, in some of traditional munitions that Taiwan is getting from the United States, we're talking about Javelin, we're talking about the Harpoon missiles, for example. There is also a concern that U.S. must prioritize its home, homeland stockpile before they have spares to give it to Taiwan. And the second part is political. So the major showdown in, uh, in the U.S. Congress has definitely uh, reminded, I would say, the United States allies, including Taiwan, that when domestic kind of political discussions were mixed into, you know, I would say to going to be a little bit careful here, but but when I say for example, the Republicans are trying to tie the border issue with the USAs in Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, which they have every right to do so. And, and is, the border issue is definitely important for the American people. So when that happens, and I understand, you know, in Taiwan, we do have these kind of political strategic moves, right, to force the other side into a negotiation. But throughout this process, it definitely makes Taiwan anxious about you know when will another appropriations or when will another bill on supporting the defense of Taiwan will accelerating the handover of Taiwan's articles from the U.S. to Taiwan? When will that happen? If the negotiation and the border issue or any other domestically linked issue are not resolved in the current polarized capital on the hill, so those are the two aspects that Taiwan is currently worried about from a potential policymaker's perspective. Understood. Well, yes, thanks, Stephen. I mean, this is certainly a, a really important issue, not only the elections themselves, but also all of the implications that you've outlined to track in the coming year and even well beyond that. So I just wanted to say thank you very much to Stephen for providing your valuable insights and, and thank you all for listening. You can find more analysis related to Taiwan and U.S.-China relations on our website at newlinesinstitute.org. Take care and all the best in the new year. Thank you very much. 